Uh, Today, as we move through the book of Philippians, we've come to a jewel of a text, and it is the attitude of Christ. It's located in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This would be the centerpiece of the book, probably one of the most uh, incredible texts of all the New Testament, and it has to do with the attitude of Christ and the deity of Christ and then how that challenges us. So we're going to read it together. If you're able to stand with us, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, the attitude of Christ. It reads this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for this gathering on this Lord's Day and to be able to uh, peer into a text that is just filled with gold, beauty, power, application, so much, Lord. And Thank you for it. Thank you for breathing it out so we can take it in. And we pray that it would change us, that it would be truly transformational in our lives on many levels, not just on the theology side, but also on the application side. So would you bless your people? They've come to hear from you. And I pray that that would be indeed the case, that you'd be glorified in the way we divide your word, but also in the way we respond to it. We'd have ears to hear what you would say to your church in this hour In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say amen, amen. Marshall points out that Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a hymn with three stages. It has the pre-existence of Christ, and I'll give you these headings as we move through, or his equality with God, his humiliation, and then his exaltation. So you could say a three-point sermon on uh, who Jesus is, how he humbled himself, and how He will ultimately be exalted. So there is a prophetic aspect to Philippians 2 when it talks about every knee bow, every tongue will confess. The difference between what Paul normally does in this particular text is that Paul in many of the New Testament letters will start with theology and then move to responsibility or from doctrine to duty. So oftentimes he will lay out a doctrinal treatise of something And it will say, in light of this, this is how you should behave. This is your duty in response to the the teaching. But in this case, he flips it around and gives you the duty and then tells you why or gives you the doctrine. And this is unusual, but this is what we have in Philippians chapter 2. What he challenged us with is in verses 3 through 5 leading up uh, to our text. Do nothing, look at verse 3, from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests too for, but also for the interests of others. And then 
what I would consider a bridge verse, so linking us to the previous section and then leading us into what's ahead, have this attitude or this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this kind of approach to life. Let Jesus be your ultimate example of how to live. And of course, that's what we all want to do, right? We're all, those of you who are Christians, we are Christ followers, and we would all say, this is what we want. We want to be more like Jesus. We want to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And we know that it's not just about the example of Christ, because the power of his example is second to none. But we need more than imitation. We need impartation. And we're going to talk about the power that's available to us to live this out. Because this is higher than any of us could ever do. How could we have the mind of Christ? How can we have the same attitude? But this specific text is going to teach us how to do that. And the first thing I want to point out is have this attitude in yourselves is a Greek word called phronio. If you're taking notes, it's P-H-R-O-N-E-O. It means the exercise of your mind or be mentally disposed in a certain direction. The emphasis is on the idea of adopting a certain attitude. How many of you enjoy Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A is, uh, I don't know what it is about that chicken, but uh, I I do uh, crave it quite often, despite how long the lines are. And uh, their employees are pretty incredible people. And every time they serve me, I say something like, thank you very much. And then they say, my pleasure. Now, the cynical side of me might say, was it really your pleasure? (laughs) Or are you just trained to say that? But I will say they hire some pretty amazing people, much like In-N-Out. I think they look for a certain type of person with a certain positive attitude. And uh, I'm always blessed when I go there. Number one, I know what the company stands for. Number two, I like the chicken. Number three, I like it when someone says it's my pleasure to serve you. So there you go. And so for us as believers, the, the main emphasis of the text, if you will, from the application side, is this is what you need to do. You need to have this attitude. I need to have this attitude. This must be my mindset. When I wake up on a Monday morning, when I'm at work on a Wednesday, is to have this attitude in myself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so that is the, the foundational example. The apostles were uh, listening to Jesus as he was heading towards Jerusalem in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus began to share with them what was going to happen to him. He prophesied his own death and resurrection a number of times in the New Testament. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to mistreat me, scourge me, beat me, crucify me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And James and John, right after that, in Mark's gospel, which is a fast-moving, you know, uh, kind of, you might say, even truncated gospel, but it is uh, right to the point. Mark says that right after Jesus shares that word about his demise, James and John say, Lord, we want you to do something for us. We have a request of you. Right on the heels of that, we want you to let us sit on your right hand and on your left hand. Now, that's pretty amazing to me that right after Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to mistreat me, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, right away they go to me, myself, and I. Now, this is what we want you to do for us, Lord. Yeah, 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 you're going to die and all that, but we want to be able to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. 
And Jesus had to give many lessons about the attitude of his kingdom. He said, look, the, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over one another. It's all about power for them. But for you, it's not that way in my kingdom. If you want to be great, you must be what? Servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And this is how that text ends, Mark 10, 45. And to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be like me, if you claim to follow me, you need to stop that selfishness and that pride stuff. And isn't that the heart of the text, right? And I, I find in myself that the biggest challenge to doing this particular text, Philippians 2.5, is me. <laughs> Anybody else? Because I know I desire to do it, but I find another law working in my members, that is in my flesh, with a tendency to be selfish, a tendency to brush by the word that Jesus just gave me and get on to what I need and what I want and what my dreams are and can I have this and can I have that. And that's not the mindset of a believer. The mindset needs to be much different than that. It needs to be a mindset just like Jesus who condescended to come on a saving mission. He illustrates this when he washes the disciples' feet the night before he dies. And I think much to their shock, Peter even says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me, Peter. And then Peter, as Peter normally would do, says, well, then douse me, Lord. You know, give me a bath. And Jesus says, at the end of the foot washing, it's familiar, I think, to most of you. He says, you call me master and Lord, and you're right, that's what I am. If I, your master and Lord, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example, hear that word, that you should do as I have done for you. So the power of Christ's example. Uh, and of course, we know that the apostles failed and Peter failed on that same fateful night. But then the difference was the power of the Holy Spirit in Peter's life. And we're going to talk about that power in a moment. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, the doctrinal uh, section now follows the application. So we move from a mindset to now who Jesus is and how far he condescended. And, and here's kind of the big point behind Paul's uh, text here. If Christ was willing to leave the glories of heaven and become a man and die on a cross for you, then can't you look out for one another's self-interest? Can't you put others above yourself? If this is how far God was willing to come down to save you, then can't you come down a little bit from your high horse? Can't you come down a little bit from your prideful ways? And can't you be more like me? Well, what happened in the case of Christ is amazing. And verses six through eight, uh, scholars believe is a early hymn in the church called the Carmen Christi, if you're taking notes. The Carmen Christi is a hymn to Christ as to God. And scholars say that the hymn was pre-Pauline. What does that mean? That it was penned before Paul wrote Philippians. And that it was an early hymn, and scholars would say, maybe not even, even in the same way we think of a hymn where we would sing like an old hymn, but it was in a creed form. So it was either sung by the early church or orally shared by the church. And get this, they say it was most likely sung during 
early church communion services. Do you know what Sunday we have in front of us right now? This is a communion Sunday. And I'm not that smart. So I think the Lord has us here on a communion Sunday for a reason. And that is to commemorate this incredible, amazing text. Called the Carmen Christi, a hymn to Christ as to God, pre-Pauline, so that it was uh, something sung in the church and Paul took the, a few of the stanzas or a fragment of the hymn and put it into the Philippians text because it fits perfectly with it. And yes, it is inspired scripture. It was just around orally, if you will, written down or perhaps shared orally before it ended up here. It would be almost as if uh, a pastor would uh, be preaching a sermon and take words from how great is our God and place them into a text. Divinely inspired scripture, no doubt, but, but sung by the early church. That's the idea here. And here's how it begins. Although Jesus existed in the form of God, if you have an NIV, it says, being in very nature God. Now I'm going to give you some things to write down as headings. We talked about the attitude or mindset. Now the first thing we run into is the pre-existence of Christ. He existed in the very nature or in very nature God or in the form of God. This is Christ's pre-existence or his deity. The historical Jesus is linked with the one true and living God. Prior to the incarnation, Jesus is God, has always been God, and he's part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is who Jesus is. Uh, on Friday, I had my beautiful mother here uh, uh, cook me a meal, and she is a wonderful cook, and somebody's got to do it. So every time I go to her house, she, she cooks me up something, and it's always really good. Well, the phone rang while we were there, and she, someone was leaving a message, and the person said, hi, my name is such and such, and I'm your neighbor, and she thought maybe it was one of her actual neighbors, and I want to invite you to something, and she picked up the phone, and it happened to be a Jehovah's Witness. And the Jehovah's Witness was inviting my mom, kind of doing like a cold calling, I think, of the area, to an annual event that they hold in Jehovah's Witnesses. And let me just say this to you guys, that there are wonderful people in Je the Jehovah's Witnesses, good, wonderful, loving people. I'm not making commentary on the people, but on the doctrine. And here's basically what the invitation was. They do an annual celebration once a year, they invite the public to come to it. And this is the one time a year where they do communion. However, no one can take communion because they have a belief of the 144,000, the special class. By the way, in their chronology and how they predicted the end of the world, all of these 144,000 were born before 1914. Now, if you do some quick math in your head, you probably know that ain't, Many of them alive, if any. So when you go to this service, you have to basically just let the communion pass you by. And all the Jehovah's Witnesses that are there have to let it pass them by as well. Now, why do I bring it up? I bring it up because Jehovah's Witnesses are one group that deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say the New Testament doesn't teach that Jesus is God. And, in, and you dig a little bit in their theology, they believe that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God and that he is Michael the archangel, but he's certainly not God, etc. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, I was 
laughing with my mom because my grandmother who died, I think in the late 80s, was a wonderful Italian woman and she uh, loved the Lord and, and all of that. And she would say, uh, she stayed home when we were growing up and stuff. And she would say, oh, uh, I talked to the Jacobis today. And we'd say, what? Well, that was my grandma's way of saying Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, the Jacobis came by and I talked to the Jacobis today. We're like, what, what's this Jacoby thing? But you know, when you're Italian, you just make up words. And if they end with an I, you're pretty much good. And she said, yeah, and the other day I talked to the morbids. <laughs> Grandma. But she just kind of made up words, and some of you have relatives like that. Now, I bring it up just to tell you that there are groups that this is the central issue. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, denied the deity of Christ. He denied the Trinity. He denied salvation by grace alone through faith alone. About every essential of the historic Christian faith is denied by Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, you might say, why? Well, the issue largely centers itself around whether or not Jesus is God. And maybe you have questions like that as well. Maybe you're wondering, well, what texts actually prove that Jesus is God? This is one of them. Please note it, Jesus existed in very form as God. The word for form there, I'm going to get a little technical this morning, but I think it's going to be worth our time. The word for form there in the New American Standard Bible is morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E. So it, it means this, morphe is properly the nature or essence, not in the abstract, but as actually subsisting in the individual and retained as long as the individual itself exists. Morphe, morphe theu is the Greek original of this, is the divine nature actually and inseparably subsisting in the person of Christ. For the interpretation of the form of God, is, it is sufficient to say that one, it includes the whole nature and essence of deity and is inseparable from, from them since they could have no actual, actual existence without it. And that it does not include in itself anything accidental or separable, such as particular modes or manifestations. So some groups might say something like this. Oh, well, Jesus was simply the manifestation of the Father, something called modalism. No, that's not what is actually happening here. The Son, God the Son, is God. And once you say that he has the nature of God, God can't become God nor can he stop being God, amen? If God is God, then he's God. And the Bible teaches this clearly. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, the Word became incarnated. He became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. And we beheld what? His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ in the incarnation was God in a human body. And since he pre-existed as God, he never stopped being God. Here's the way to understand this, and it's profound, but I think it's a simple way to get it. He didn't stop being God. He added onto himself humanity. It was not the subtraction of deity, but the addition of humanity. God became a man in the person of Christ. Amen? Now, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying he existed in very nature, God. 
Before the world was, Christ was there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a love relationship. Colossians 2.9, a good parallel passage says, In Jesus, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The true meaning of morphe, form, or form of God, is confirmed in its reoccurrence in a corresponding phrase in verse 7, the form of a servant. Jesus was fully human, he became a servant, and he was also fully God. His nature was full humanity and full deity. And this is the mystery of the beauty of the incarnation of Christ. Calvin puts it this way, the form of God means here his majesty, for as man is known by the appearance of his form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. Creedily, we say it this way, he is light of light. We must note that form of God does not refer simply to his external appearance, but to his being. There is only one God by nature, Galatians 4.8. You can call anything a God. We know the God of the Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me with a small g. You can't have any idols. You don't worship those things. They're all false. But once you say Jesus is God by nature, that makes him the true God. Because there's only one true God by nature. Everybody with me? Galatians 4.8 is the key verse here. So B.B. Warfield puts it this way. Paul did not simply say Jesus was God. He says he was in the form of God, employing a turn of speech which throws emphasis upon our Lord's possession of the specific quality of God. Form is a term which expresses the sum of those characterizing qualities which make a thing the precise thing that it is inside and out. When our Lord is said to be in the form of God, therefore, he is declared in the most express manner possible to be all that God is, to possess the whole fullness of attributes, attributes which make God, God. So Jesus was God in a human body and he veiled his glory in humanity. We got a look at it on the Mount of Transfiguration where he goes up with Peter, James, and John, and all of a sudden he's transfigured before them. Remember that? And his face shone like the sun and his garments were gleaming bright. And Moses and Elijah were there, the law and the prophets. And they talked with Jesus. And then all of a sudden they fade into the background and the only one that is left there is Jesus because he is the fulfillment. He is the sum total, if you will, of the law and the prophets. It all points to him. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, O God, to do thy will. Jesus Christ, God, became a man and dwelt among us. And we got a little uh, you know, preview, if you will. But had he displayed his full glory walking around, no one could have survived. No one could have looked upon him and lived. And so he came and dwelt among us. When he prays the great high priestly prayer the night before he's killed on the cross, he says, now glorify me together with thyself, Father, John 17, 5, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Colossians 1.15 puts it this way. He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Jesus said in John 14.9, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Amen? 
If you've seen me, you've seen God. How can you say, show us the Father? And in Colossians and in John 1, it goes on to say this, and all things were made by him and for him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and that life is the light of men. The Bible clearly declares that Jesus Christ is creator and sustainer of the universe. And Paul's point is that if this is what God was willing to do, to leave the glories of heaven and come down on a saving mission, then can't you have an attitude towards others that would be like his heart toward you? What rings in the background of the text is the application that it started with, have this mind in you. If he was willing to go from the heights of the glories of heaven and condescend to become human and then die the ignominious, terrible death of the cross, then can't we love each other? Can't we put others before ourselves? That's where Paul is going. And so Hebrews 1 puts it this way. Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. When he had made purification for sins of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So form of God does not refer simply to his appearance, but to his being. To conclude on a little bit of a technical section here, morphe, morphe form refers to that form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. The phrase in the form of God is best interpreted against the background of the glory of God, the shining light in which, according to the Old Testament and intertestamental literature, God was pictured. The form of God is understood in the glory of God or the doxa of God or the light of God or his effulgence, if you will. And so Jesus Christ came and dwelt among us and we saw God in him. Of course, veiled in his humanity, no doubt. But we saw his power on display over forces like the, the demons and the devil and the sea and even death. When he says, Lazarus, come forth, he shows you the power of who he is. Boyce puts it this way. There is no real knowledge of the father apart from the knowledge of the son. In fact, the Bible says if you don't have the son, 1 John 2.23, you don't have the father. You can't know God without knowing Jesus Christ, who is the singular way to God. Now, I remember when I first heard that Jesus was God, it kind of confused me. I had heard things like he's the son of God, and, but then I heard about his deity, and I was a little bit confused because trying to think about these angles with my finite little mind can be difficult. But nonetheless, this is what the Bible teaches, that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he did not regard equality, look at verse six again, with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the way you could think about it is just two main points here. Equality with God affirms that Jesus is God because God says, well, to whom will you compare me or who will be my equal? There's nobody equal with God except God the Son, amen? Amen. And so to be equal with God is another affirmation that he is God. He couldn't be equal with God unless he was God. There's no equal, etc. But he did not grasp on to that equality. In what sense? Well, 
He could have held on to all of his prerogatives and he could have just stayed up in the glories of heaven with the Father, but then we'd all be in deep trouble, amen? So he released his grip of the privileges to come down on a saving mission. And I think implied in this is the idea that we are to do the same. We can have rights and privileges. We can say, well, I deserve this or this belongs to me or whatever. But Jesus released the grip on those things to come down and save us. So whenever we're holding on to our rights, we're usually in trouble, especially if we're having a deep fellowship conversation with our spouse. Can I get a witness? Some of you got that. Intense fellowship, let's call it, right? And we, we talk about our rights and what I deserve. and uh, just, just plan on having the dog move over and make a little extra room for you and bring a blankie. See, Jesus was equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit by extension. And yet he didn't hold on to it. Though Christ had all the rights, privileges, and honors of deity, which he was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, his attitude was not to cling to those things of his position or use for his own advantage from a study Bible here, but to be willing to give them up for a season. And so Jesus is the ultimate example of having great privilege, but laying it aside for the sake and love of others. And notice what he did. He emptied himself, seven, taking on the form, that's the same word morphe there, of a bondservant and being made likeness in the likeness of men. Now what Jesus did is he emptied himself, and this is another word I want to give to you, those of you who are taking notes. It's kenao, K-E-N-O-O, kenao. And it is the theological word for kenosis or the self-emptying of Christ in his incarnation. Now, liberal theologians at the beginning of the last century came up with a heretical kenosis doctrine, a false teaching, where they said that when Jesus was incarnated, when he became a man, that's what incarnated means, when he took on flesh, he stopped being God. It's called the kenosis theory. And this is false. Because Jesus could not stop being God. God can never stop being who he is. Amen? He is God. So then what happened? Like when you read that he emptied himself or he made himself nothing, ESV, NIV, what does it mean? What did he lay aside or what did he empty of himself? And again, we've been hinting at it. That is the right and prerogatives of deity. Now there's a little debate in the church about how far to push this. For example, many of you have heard of the omni-attributes of God, omnipresence, omniscience, uh, om, omnipotent, etc. Was Jesus, did he have all of those attributes at his disposal when he was here? Some people say when the woman touched his, the hem of his garment and he said, who touched me? He, he really didn't know who touched him. When he talks about his second coming and he says only the Father knows, not even the angels or the Son, he really didn't know. And there's some people that say that's what he did. That's Philippians 2. He laid aside the prerogatives, so there's some things that he didn't know. We know for sure he wasn't omnipresent in his human form. 
We know he had to walk places. He got tired. The Bible says that God never sleeps nor slumbers, yet Jesus is sleeping in the New Testament. He got hungry. He felt pressure. He was born a a Jewish male baby. He grew up in a nowhere town called Nazareth. He experienced pressure, suffering. He was uh, betrayed by those closest to him. We can go on and on. He experienced the fullness of what it means to be human because he was human and he is human. In fact, remember when Jesus rose from the dead, he invited the disciples to check out the scars in his hands and his side. Those were real scars. He was really physical. And when he ascends back into heaven, remember he ascends in his resurrection body. So that scholars would argue that Jesus is forever the God-man. That in our understanding of what's taking place right now in his high priestly ministry, it is the God-man seated at the right hand of the Father who's interceding for us. It is the God-man who is coming again in the second coming. And it is the God-man that we will touch and perhaps hug, and he will literally physically wipe tears away from our eyes. This is how far the condescension goes. It would appear, walking this out, that Jesus, in making a decision to become human, will forever be human. And I'll tell you, that's not only humbling, but it's thrilling. Amen? Because the same Jesus that the disciples interacted with and touched and saw the scars, etc., we will do that as well. He is going to be physical. And there is such a beauty in knowing that I will get to touch him and look into his eyes. I mean, there's stuff that I, I don't even know if my words can bring it out. But that's the beauty of who our God is. We talked about his preexistence. Verse 7 talks about his humiliation. He made himself nothing. If you're taking notes, it's another big heading. He emptied himself. He chose to do it. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we studied the bondservant in Exodus 21. And we learned that a uh, Hebrew servant could choose after seven years of service, to stay with their master forever. Remember, if they declared, I love my master, I don't want to go anywhere. And then a formal ceremony would occur. Remember what it was? They would put the servant, the bond servant, against a doorpost, and they would take an awl, something like an ice pick, and they would pierce their ear, open up their ear, if you will, and then perhaps an earring would go there. And it would be an indication that they had chosen to be a voluntary slave of their master forever. I told you that many New Testament writers, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, James, a bondservant, Jude, a bondservant, etc., Peter, a bondservant of Christ. Do you know why they wrote that? At least in part because they got it from Christ who said, I didn't come into, into the world to be served, but to serve. I am the ultimate bondservant. If you're going to follow me, this is what you ought to be as well. And I told you the imagery of the, the all and the opening up of the ear is the bondservant says, whatever my master says, that's what I do. And I will be attached to this house forever. The beauty of the picture is that Jesus Christ became a bondservant. And of course, it's pictured in his washing of the disciples' feet. I pointed out to you Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, where it basically says, you've pierced my ear, and it's a messianic prophecy. And so this is what Jesus did. 
he emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant, and was made in the likeness of men. He was truly a man, but more than that, he was a servant, and he laid down his life for us. He's the last Adam, the beginner of a new humanity. He is everything that we were intended to be, and of course, more. Christ did this by taking on the form of a bondservant. In doing this, he did not empty himself of any part of his essence of God as God, but gave up the privileges as God and took on the existence of a man. And I'll tell you, it was a big drop down for him. <laughs> king James V of Scotland would on occasion lay aside the royal robe of a king and put on the simple robe of a peasant. In such a disguise, he was able to move freely about the land, making friends with ordinary folk, entering into their difficulties, appreciating their handicaps, and sympathizing with them in their sorrow. And when as king he sat upon the throne, he was better able to rule over them with fatherly compassion and mercy. God shares in human experience and thereby is better able to sympathize and empathize with us, which is basically the essence of Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We have a great high priest who empathizes. So next time you pray, you understand that Jesus Christ knows exactly what it is to be human because right now he's human. Right now he is fully man and fully God. So when you go to him, you can understand the depth of his compassion for you. You, you can understand how he entered into our pain. And there was nothing in Jesus in his human form that made him known to other people. In fact, if you looked into a crowd from everything we know of the New Testament, there's no way you would know which guy was Jesus. He didn't have a halo over his head as much as some of the ancient art would depict it that way. You wouldn't know. In fact, Judas, when he came with all those people into the garden, he said, the one I kiss, he's the one. Because you wouldn't have known that it was Jesus now, you would know if you saw him do a miracle. You would know if he, if he preached a sermon, etc. But you wouldn't know by his physical appearance. In fact, the Bible says in uh, Isaiah 53, 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground, and he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Isaiah 53, 2. What set Jesus apart was obviously that he was God in human flesh, but he became one of us and was made in the full likeness of man. Christ was truly man, but not merely man. And then, of course, he came to serve us. Eminent Greek scholar Daniel Wallace explains, the Philippians are told not to puff themselves up with empty glory because Christ was an example of one who emptied his glory. If the connection is intentional, then the Carmen Christi, this ancient hymn, has the following force. Do not elevate yourselves on empty glory, but follow the example of Jesus, who, though already elevated on God's level, emptied his glory by veiling it in humanity. If it's about your glory, brothers and sisters, you will be empty. Take a look at our world today. Everybody pursuing vain glory is an empty individual. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And whenever you're grasping for your own glory, you're going to be an empty person. But whenever you lay aside your pride for the sake of God and others, what happens? You become a full person. Amen? 
You live a full life, which, which is exactly what Jesus uh, came to show us and provide for us. And so the preexistent divine son of God of his own volition laid aside the prerogatives of deity for a season. And if that is the case, then how did he do what he did? Well, some people would argue that he did use some of those things when he calmed the sea. And, and there, there's another group of scholars that say that Jesus completely relied on the Holy Spirit and that he's the ultimate spirit-filled human that has ever walked the planet. Now, I lean towards, I think he did use some of his, the progress of deity at times, but it's, it's an open debate. But certainly, Christ experienced the power of the Spirit. Now, this is what I want to show you to encourage your walk with the Lord. We're going to turn to a few New Testament passages quickly. The first one we're going to is Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. So Jesus, when he was baptized, remember the heavens open. John the Baptist saw the Spirit of God light upon him and remain. That's how he knew that Jesus was Messiah. And then Jesus, the Gospel of Mark tells us, right after that, uh, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, he was impelled by the Spirit, Mark 1, I think it's verse 12, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, right? And so uh, Matthew 12, 28 talks about this reality of what Jesus shared in his power. Matthew 12, 28 says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Flip over to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 4. So the power of the Holy Spirit was evident in the life of Jesus. Take a look. This is now uh, capturing the, temp the temptation by the devil. And this is Spirit-filled Jesus. Take a look. Luke 4, 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. Skip down to verse 14 of Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. Flip over to Luke chapter 10. I want you to see that I think one of the lessons implied here for believers is that if Jesus relied on the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more you and me from the greater to the lesser. I can't leave my house if I want to be victorious on a Monday or a Tuesday without the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, without putting on the armor of God, without being filled with the Holy Spirit. Take a look at Luke 10. Jesus uh, sends out the 70, and uh, he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Pick it up at verse 19 of Luke 10. Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, Luke 10, 20, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and did reveal them to babes, yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. And then one more. It's in the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts uh, 10. This is a summary of the life and ministry of Jesus. Peter preaching to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile house. He says these words about the person and ministry of Jesus. Luke, I'm sorry, Acts 10, 38. 
He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, Acts 10.38, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Note it. You know of Jesus, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. If you want to have the power of God in your life, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? From the greater to the lesser. So this is what Jesus had in terms of his power. And this is how he went about doing good. Back to Philippians chapter 2. And we'll finish it. They were taking bets in the back whether I'd get to verse 11. Uh, I made it at first service, so we're going to make it at second as well. Here's what I want to say to you. If you want the power of God in your life, you need to learn how to walk the Spirit-filled life. Because this is what Jesus did, and he is our ultimate example. So how do we do that? Spending time in his presence, spending time before the Word of God, spending time in worship. It is a very much a trajectory of your mind. Spiritual warfare takes place in the realm of the mind and, of course, in the heart. So the moment that I decide my trajectory today will be, Lord, I want to have this attitude in me that was also in Christ. Would you fill me with his mind? Would you help me to put on the helmet of salvation? Help me to put on the mind of Christ. Fill me with the power of God. Help me go around doing good. You know, the preeminent sign that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what it will be? It will be love. If you want to know if you're walking in the Spirit, it will be love. Just quickly. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is dealing with spiritual gifts, laying out uh, how they are used, etc. But he says in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, you could have all these gifts. You could speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. It means nothing. It profits nothing. But if you're filled with the Spirit and love is coming out of your life, it means, brethren, everything. Amen? It's what will set you apart. That's how people will know that you belong to Christ. And so to be filled with the Spirit is the implied reality here for that power. And being found, Philippians 2.8, in appearance as a man... He humbled himself, a continuing theme of his humiliation. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And of course, he says to his followers, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, here's another implied truth in the text. You got to die to the flesh. Amen? You got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Now, for some of the apostles, a literal cross was ahead, like Peter. But for most of us living in Southern California, it's going to be a metaphor. And you know what the metaphor is? It's crucifying the flesh so that the Spirit can reign in your life. This is all easy stuff this morning. You guys all know that, right? All light, fluffy. Now, we move from the mindset to his preexistence and deity to his humiliation to his exaltation, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, as a result of Christ's uh, life, obedience, etc., God highly exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name which is above every name. This is Christ's exaltation. To the loftiest height, Exodus 15, 1 says, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Psalm 46, 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. I could go on quoting verses, but I think you all know. The Lord's name is high and lifted up, and yet the name of the Son is exalted above every name. Take a look at verse 10. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven. You can think of angels and uh, saints that are there on earth. That's humanity. And under the earth could speak of the dead, that is the unsaved dead. It could also speak of demonic spirits, universal in scope and prophetic. What do I mean by that? This is yet to be fully realized. This is a prophecy that at the name of Jesus, which by the way, his name means Yahweh saves, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Take it to the bank. One day, everyone's going to bow. And the implication of the language of confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, in verse 11, every tongue should confess, is a word that means they will acknowledge, they will agree, but they may not do it happily. Some people are going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. But they're not going to be saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's going to be a tough spot. Hitler is going to bow. Every president that's ever lived is going to bow. Every leader, every person that looks so powerful. You can go back to the first century and we can talk about Herod. We can talk about Hitler. We can talk about Egyptian pharaohs. We can talk about presidents and dictators and the like. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, to the glory of God the Father. When you proclaim Jesus as Lord, the Father is glorified. Amen? You want to bring glory to the Father, you proclaim the Son. They are interconnected as we are seeing in the text. And so one day, we're all going to be confessing Jesus Christ is Lord, and we're going to be celebrating, but other people are going to be in a not-so-nice place saying Jesus Christ is Lord. But I think for many, it's going to be too late. And so it's going to be, do it now. Now, the, the verses that we just read uh, in 10 and 11 are a quote from Isaiah 45. This is my last text, I promise. Isaiah 45, turn there, would you? So in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, God is challenging the false gods of the nations, the idols, what men and women create and worship. And he's basically saying, if you're a God, if you're the true God, then predict the future or do something that might dazzle us. That's kind of the idea. And the verses that we just read are a quotation from Isaiah 45. I want to show you just a few things to set this up so you can see the context. Isaiah 45, this uh, passage we just read in Philippians 2 is an echo of this or a quote of this. And here's just a foretaste of what's going on. 45, 5 of Isaiah. 
I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, Isaiah 45, 5, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Look at verse 12. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their hosts. Skip down to verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Lord in all caps there is Yahweh, who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no one else. And then down to verse 20. Gather yourselves and come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth 21 your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior, there is none except me. Can God be any more clear? <laughs> Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now, all of this is about Yahweh. Now, take a look. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth, in righteousness it will not turn back, that to me, that is Yahweh, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance, they will say of me, only in the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness and strength, men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. Guess what? On that day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will articulate these words. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. That's what the text is saying. Jesus Christ is God. Now, we're in the prayer room praying before this service, and one of the prayer warriors said, Lord, people so often take your name and abuse it, take it down to the level of a four-letter curse word to express disgust. But your name is holy. And Jesus Christ has the name which will be exalted above every single name that there ever will be. And look at our culture. And look how the name of Jesus is used. Now, do we need revival in our land? Yes. Do we need a new appreciation and insight into revelation about who God is? Yes. But this also, it's not only application, but it's thrilling because one day everyone will be confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, thank you for your word as we get ready to take now the elements of communion. I pray that you would... Prepare our hearts uh, to remember the great condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ and now his great exaltation that he's in heaven interceding for his people. And I pray that as we come to your table, we would be nourished and encouraged. And just with your head and heart bowed just for a moment, if you've not met the Lord Jesus Christ, if you didn't know really who he was or how far he was willing to go to save you. 
if maybe you didn't realize until this moment that God the Father loved you so much that he sent his son on a saving mission, won't you come to him? Won't you confess now that he is Lord? Believe in your heart that God allowed him to die on the cross, rise from the dead, and trust him. Say, Lord, I want you to be my king, my God, my savior, my Lord. He's so faithful to save. He's so good and so full of compassion. That's why he came in the first place. Maybe you've been backslidden. Maybe uh, you've been confused about some of these doctrines and they've weighed heavy on you. But I pray that you have clarity about who Christ is and that you would come to him and trust in him for who he says he is. And Lord, for this wonderful congregation, would you bless them as they come to your table? Nourish them, strengthen them for the week ahead. In Jesus' name, I pray and all God's people said, amen.